everyone. Welcome to the Field and Garden Podcast. I'm Jesse from the Gardener's Workshop. Today, I have for you an interview that Lisa did recently over on the Joe Gardner Show podcast, where she joined host Joe Lample to discuss the concept of succession planting with flowers. They covered topics such as making the best use of your space and resources, maximizing your flower production over time, flowers that thrive in late summer and fall, as well as the beneficial role that seed starting with soil blocking has played in Lisa's succession planting process. It's a great conversation as always with these two. So here you go. I hope you enjoy. First, a word about the Field and Garden Podcast. The Field and Garden Podcast is a part of the Gardener's Workshop. The Gardener's Workshop has been telling the stories and how-tos of growing, selling, and helping others to pursue their flower-growing dreams for over 25 years. What began as one gardening enthusiast sharing her passion has grown into so much more. Over at thegardenersworkshop.com, find in print with our blogs and books and through our podcasts and videos and courses. And we have a shop full of the same tools, seeds, and supplies that you hear mentioned on our podcast. You can connect with all of these resources over at thegardenersworkshop.com. I hope you'll take some time to explore all we have for you. Welcome to the Field and Garden Podcast. Hi, everybody. It's Joe Lample, the Joe behind Joe Gardner, and welcome to the Joe Gardner Show. This year in my vegetable garden, we're dedicating more space to flowers, specifically pollinator and beneficial insect attracting flowers, and some space for beautiful cut flowers as well. And I feel like I'm kind of late to the game here, but I realized there was room around the interior perimeter fence line, sufficient enough for new beds, although not as big as my food beds, but where we could really dedicate some space for more native non-edibles to draw in the good insects. So in January, that's what we did. We built new beds, filled them with soil cubed, my favorite composted soil mix, and now we're finishing out with the planting. And I'm very excited about that. And it got me thinking about succession planting with flowers, just like we do to get the most out of our vegetable garden. But the question is, do you keep planting more of the same summer classics as the season goes on? And all the while continuing to cut back on the flowers that have already been blooming their little hearts out? Or do you hold back available space to dedicate to the next planting of fresh, new, different flowers that are best grown at a different time of year? So many questions from this veg-heavy gardener that needed a flower refresher from one of the best in the business for commercial flower growing. My returning guest today, she's been on the podcast a couple times before, Lisa Mason-Ziegler. Lisa is the founder and owner of the Gardener's Workshop, a great resource for flower seeds, flower farming information, online courses, YouTube videos, podcasts, and a lot more. So today I'm speaking with Lisa about succession planting with flowers, asking her questions that I have about this, and hopefully getting many of your questions answered along the way. Lisa, it's great to have you back. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Joe. It's my pleasure. Great. Well, you have been so busy, and uh, I, I enjoy getting all your emails and seeing your new video post and the course content that you're putting out. You provide such a great service to 
everybody, especially aspiring flower farmers and people that just want to know how to grow flowers better. Anytime you send something out, I'm sending it to my farm manager, Toby, and you know, making sure that she's seen anything that you say. Thank you for doing that, not only for us, but I'm sure for all the other people that love your content as much as we do. That is way too kind, Joe. I just kind of love what I do and love yakking about it, you know, and sharing the love for it. So yeah. it kind of works out really, really well. Well, and it comes across too, because clearly you love what you do and you're passionate about teaching it. It's so casual, but so full of great information and all that wisdom behind it. So anyway, yes, a lot of, a lot of accolades to you and well-deserved. But today you're going to help me strengthen my skills in an area where you thrive, and that is succession planting with flowers. And as I think you know, we've been talking to you, we've ordered a lot of seeds from you about our new addition to our vegetable garden area, where we're, we're the entire perimeter now is dedicated to flowers uh, along the interior fence line. So I'm so excited to see it coming to life again with many of the things that you sent us uh, seed-wise and all through this coming season. I cannot wait. And I am so anxious to learn more about it because I started my gardening career at eight years old with flowers. And, uh, you know, vegetables kind of took over my life and has for a long time, but I have an equal love for flowers and I can't wait to get deep back into it. But one of the things I've already kind of worried about what we're going to talk about today is succession planting. Like, for example, I mean, you plant zinnias and then you keep cutting them back and they rebloom, but do you plant them again for a fresh crop? And, you know, there's so many flower options like that. How do we keep everything going strong for as long as possible and keeping looking good like we do with vegetables? You know, we can do the, apply the same concept. So why should we be thinking about succession planting? Planting. Sure. So, um, Thank you for all that. That was, and it gave me some food for thought to answer this too, because I think the first thing, what is succession planting maybe first for someone that might not even be familiar with what that means. Right. And I think the simplest way that I think of it is instead of running out as soon as spring hits and plant every square inch of garden space, whether it's a 10 foot bed or an acre, if you're a farmer, mm. Instead of thriving to like or aiming to actually plant the whole thing, you think, okay, I don't have to do this all at once. Let's break my garden up into like maybe I think in three sections um, and let's plant some now, plant some a little later and then some even a little bit later. And we'll talk more about what you would, how you would do that. But there are so many benefits to this. Not only is this the secret to how farmers have a consistent supply of whether it be vegetables or flowers to sell commercially, it actually makes the most out of your own resources. I mean, the number one, um, I was just talking about this on a YouTube last week, one of the most common, it's not even a question, it's like a help me. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have enough heat mat space to start seeds and they don't have enough grow lights. And I am here to tell everybody, 25 years in and I still don't have enough space. <laughs> that is, don't you think, Joe? Uh, I mean, that's like, that is a constant challenge. But by succession planting and kind of like you would compare it to running the 50-yard dash to a 27-mile marathon, oh. instead of just starting a ton of seeds at one time and then you feel like you have to plant them all at one time and then they all come due at one time, 
if you do a little bit now and plant this section of your garden and then you've got that in and guess what? Now it's time to start more and plant and move on. And there certainly is a lot of ways to help maintain your garden in a way that keeps it happy and healthy while you're doing this. But it gives you a consistent supply of product, whether it's flowers or vegetables. It spreads out the work. It makes the most out of your resources. And for me, as a commercial flower farmer, what I learned is when that 10-minute Thursday afternoon weirdo weather event rolls across my farm and flattens 2,000 sunflowers, guess what? There's two other plantings on the other side of the farm that weren't touched. I have to wait probably five or 10 days for them, but I have more because they were succession planted. Mm -hmm. So constant supply, I think, um, and pest problems. Yes. Okay. I I just want to jump in on one thing you said a minute ago, which is so relevant to probably a lot of us because at the start of the season, we're so excited and we're, we're all this pent up energy to get planting and we do go overboard. And you and I talked before we even started recording how we, you know, trying to, uh, practice what (laughs) we preach, you know, by pacing ourselves a little bit more. I, I, I'm terrible at that right now, but I'm getting a little bit better. But anyway, I'm, I wanted to tell you that I've had that those intentions of succession planting tomato plants and other things you know, of the same, you know, the same crop, but just staging it and spacing it out. But because I overdo it early on, even with the best of intentions, oh, I'm going to take those suckers and root them out and plant them as a second crop in July. I'm so burned out by that time because I I had all those early ones going on. I didn't have the energy or really the desire to go at it even more. But had I cut back on my, you know, the volume that I was starting with and and mentally preparing, I think that would have made a huge difference in my ability to actually follow through on doing succession planting. You know, that's a great point. And I think, first off, I was forced to really get into succession planting because I'm a commercial producer, right? Of flowers. And I needed to have as much to sell to my customers. And in fact, um, thinking about that now, in fact, the only season that is second to spring, which is the biggest cash crop time of the year in the flower business, you know, everybody's getting married and partying and all kinds of stuff. (laughs) The second lot, the next most busy season is fall. Mm. But guess what? Most of us are so what you just explained, burnt out, Mm -hmm. overcome, um, that they get into September and realize, oh, my goodness, I never planted amaranth, which is a perfect fall crop, Uh and the weekly sunflowers. And it's like you could, I mean, to finish up your season with a roundup crop of killer stuff to sell and people are hungry. Um, So I think I was forced to figure it out. Um, I did it for a few years. That is for sure. That's one of the things I talk about in flower farming school. It's like, you think I'm harping on sticking to your plan, but there's a reason Mm -hmm. because, you know, I missed out for so many years later in the season, as you just explained and timing and pacing yourself. And I mean, let's just be honest. I have staff. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You do too. I mean, but it's like for us, it is more manageable, but I think that that 
controlling us in the beginning is not emphasized enough, particularly for the home gardener and the budding grower. They're so eager. It's like pace yourself because Mm -hmm. the big bang is later in the season. If you hold off and leave space in your garden, space in your mind and space for your back to actually do the job. Right. Right. So on your example here, like you talked about amaranth in the fall, is that something that you would routinely wait to plant until it's coming on in the fall? Or would you try to do that even earlier in the season for earlier flowering? So, well, yeah, one of the other flowers that we really love to have for fall are cosmos. Cosmos are kind of like dahlias. As the day length gets shorter, they really put on the party hatch, right? (laughs) So they'll bloom all season, but they really bring out their best as those times go. So we do plant them earlier in the season, but maybe not as at the volume that we might do at the, and this took a lot of years to figure out, right? I would imagine. Yes. You got to plan that out. Well, and not only that is the colors. See, there are, you know, thinking of cosmos and amaranth and sunflowers. I mean, there's, there's a whole fall season right there. If you plant the the appropriate colors for fall, Uh you know, I mean, it's, yeah. So there's a lot of benefit. And I think, you know, what you described of being burnt out, um, you know, I, farmers suffer from that so very, very much. And that's just, I try my best to kind of cuddle them a little bit and say, just hold on, hold back, plant, you know, use silage tarps or cover crop in those garden spaces that you need to reserve so you don't have to worry about them. Just their day will come. It's just not today. Mm. <laughs> you know? So that's, that raises a question already from a, something else you said earlier. And that is coming back and planting another section and then another section after that versus what I would want to do. And what probably a lot of people want to do is they, they don't want to leave any place unplanted. They want flowers everywhere, but you're saying, once you figure this out, you are allocating dedicated space that comes and gets new planting. That's not ripping something, not ripping that same plant out. Is that correct? Perhaps. Okay. So here it is in a nutshell, or I guess as much of a nutshell as I can put it in. So in my garden, I typically break, would break an acre into a thirds. And let's just say not even an acre, let's just say groups of 10 beds, a bed's a hundred feet long, um, 10 beds. Okay. The first group of 10 beds is fall planted with cool season hardy annuals. Okay. So that's planted. That's what's going to be blooming in spring. Mm-hmm. The second group of 10 beds is where I'm going to plant my first warm season. And I call it a recipe of those plants that I plant, you know, zinnias and sunflowers and yeah. basil for bouquets, all that stuff yeah. that goes in the second group of 10. Then the third group of 10 is going to get the second summer recipe. And by the time you get there, which is kind of where we are right now, um, by the time we get there, guess what? The cool season hardy annuals are starting to finish up. Mm -hmm. They're starting to wane. Mm -hmm. We actually pulled our snapdragons out last week for the first time in 20 years. I got rust on my snapdragons. It was just a crazy winter here. Anyway, so now that's where more flowers will go for my perhaps third summer annual planting. Uh-huh. So I would say the hardest part of this job of succession planting is removing 
crops when they need to be removed. People hate pulling out stuff. I mean, I just threw away a bunch of trays of transplants that I won't go take you through the mud of why we're throwing them out, but it's like, it's even hard for me to trash Uh transplants, but it's like, all right, their second planting looks better than those do. And they aren't even planted yet. Move on, Lisa, you know? Mm -hmm. So you just have to like, you know, you just have to toe the line, draw a line in the sand and um, removing a crop when it's truly done, like your tomatoes. You know, yeah. if you're going to your tomato plant, I'm sure you have a a kind of a rule in your mind. If you go and you only harvest five tomatoes off of your patch yeah. in a week, it's like, OK, something is wrong here, whether it's disease or deer or whatever. Time for you all to move on. I got something else to put here. Yeah. That comes with time and it comes slowly. I will tell you that I'm getting better, <laughs> a little bit better each season with that. And I, I feel so empowered by being okay with pulling something out when it might have some life left in it. I'm deciding, no, you're out. I got more productive things going in there. Yep. And that that is a psychological boost to know that you are allowing yourself to actually follow through on what you know you need to do, but you just haven't had the guts right. to do it yet. That's huge. It is huge. And Joe, don't you think, I think somebody also needs to stop and think about, all right, that may be not the application in a landscape situation. You know, mm-hmm. if you, if you just love having zinnias um, and I have a good friend who I worked for a veterinarian for 20 years and he is a good friend and he has become a big gardener. It's so funny. He led me through the dog world all those years. And now I have helped him through the gardening world, but you know, he does not pull his zinnias out. He'll plant a couple times, yeah. but he just loves, even if they aren't producing those big voluptuous blooms, mm-hmm. he still loves them because of the butterflies and all yeah. that, you know, so he has a, another purpose I'm talking about. And I think you are too. succession planting mm-hmm. in what we would consider a working mm-hmm. productive garden. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can apply this to anywhere, but there are, there is a place where, you know, if I was just doing my landscape, I'd probably plant twice in the summer. Okay. And if something looked pretty bad, I'd probably pull it out and have something there to replace it with. Um, But you don't have to do this. This is just making the most out of a garden that's either producing vegetables or cut flowers, Mm -hmm. which is their purpose in life. Right. Right. Can I take, go back to the, uh, your friend, the, the veterinarian? Yeah, Dr. Huddleston, my yeah. good friend. Yeah. Yeah. So he's got his zinnias. He loves them. And he's just, uh, I guess, clipping them back and having them rebloom uh, for for the home gardener, not the person that's going to do this for a business who loves their zinnias too. Is there an advantage in greater, larger blooms if they were to do a succession planting of those rather than cut the, cutting them back? I mean, is this something they should do if they want bigger, more flowers as a new fresh crop mid-season? Sure. Yeah. Sure. So I think it's always, um, it seems that the first, you know, six weeks of production for many of these branching annuals that continue to bloom, their biggest and best flowers, you know, I mean, they're like out of the gate. It's like a teenager, right? They're more robust and they get a little tired. You know, we don't fertilize zinnias in the garden just so we don't help fuel mildew issues. Mm. Um, but If you want to continue to keep your plants happy and healthy, yes, cutting them and cutting them hard keeps them going. But if you want that first love of those big 
voluptuous blooms, um, having a second crop come on in midsummer, um, maybe even a little late midsummer mm -hmm. as you're heading into fall can definitely produce, be a great complement to your first planting. Excellent. So how do you know when it's time to do that? Like, how do you know when it's too late to start certain flower varieties or to start a second succession of the same crop? And is it ever too late? Well, yes, it can definitely be too late for a specific flower. Mm -hmm. um, so for instance, you know, your seed packet, or if it doesn't say it on your seed packet, you just enter into a search engine, mm -hmm. you know, days to bloom from seed to bloom for whatever variety you're talking about. Yep. And just doing it from memory, I would say that zinnias are probably like 90 days. So you also need to know when your first expected frost date is. Yep. And so yours and mine is about the same, first mm -hmm. of November. Mm -hmm. um, so 90 days is three months. You would count back three months, but then you need to give them time to grow and bloom, right? <laughs> yeah. So you want at least to have another 30 days. Right. So you need to get those plants in the ground and going at least 120 days away from that first frost. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, I feel like the best tools that people can have on their tool belt is knowing their first and last historic expected frost dates. I mean, that's what my whole farm revolves around. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like knowing when you can and when you should and shouldn't plant certain groups of flowers. And that's what it's really all based on. Right. Yeah. Um, so definitely it can be too late to plant, you know, if it's a 120 day flower variety and it's mm -hmm. only 60 days till your first frost, Done. obviously don't plant it. Yep. Um, but sometimes, I mean, there's lots of ways to manipulate and, you know, plant cool season hardy annuals that might bloom in the fall like snapdragons. But mm -hmm. um, so there's always something to plant, I typically say. For most people, there's always something to do for your succession garden um, and to be starting something yeah. most often. And I asked that question anticipating that was going to be the answer because it's, you know, there are a lot of parallels between vegetable gardening and flower gardening. And, yes. and, and I assume it's the same also with the uh, the recommended practice for how you sow your seeds. Some maybe do better and recommended that they're direct sown versus starting inside. Is that the case as much with flowers as it is with vegetables? Um, there are a few that really, um, particular for me, we only direct seed in the fall. So a few handful of cool season hardy annuals that just really love that fall planting variation of temperature, you know, uh -huh. cool nights, warm days yep. that just really light them up and get them to sprout easier. And those conditions are really hard to provide indoors, you know, that variation of temperature. Um, so yeah, so you follow along with whatever their preferred method is. And that's something that we try to provide across all of our platforms, whether it's on our seed packets, in my books, um, on our website, on the product pages, we try to say, you know, what is the preferred way that this mm -hmm. flower wants to be started? And if it, if it really will go either way, meaning you could direct seed it, which means planting it straight in the garden yeah. or start indoors. I always list the way that I do it first mm. um, because we just as commercial growers, um, hands down, you get more easier, less labor, more efficiency by starting everything indoors as much as you can. Yeah. Direct seeding is more labor intensive for sure. And one more question on that topic, like let's use tomatoes, for example, uh, the recommended way to sow the seeds is 
start them indoors because you need that growing time before you plant them outside. Right. So when you look on the seed pack and it says days to maturity, 75, that's from the time the seedling goes into the ground, not from when you sowed the seed inside two months prior to that. Do you start your clock because you're doing most of your seeds indoors? Are you starting that days to maturity clock sort of uh, from the time you sow the seeds inside in your soil blocks? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. We Good. do. And um, it's just amazing how fast they grow. My <laughs> goodness gracious. Yeah. And you're, and you are using, you're a big soil block lover, aren't you? We are. We, um, you know, that was just kind of the way that I stumbled upon when, you know, and I still don't have any greenhouses, you dog. I know that you have <laughs> one now. Um, so I still have no greenhouse. Um, we soil block. I have a big giant garage basically. That's a work building that has a grow room in it. Um, but I didn't start out with that. I started in my little bungalow, starting seeds for my commercial operation. Um, and we, in our high production years, I mean, soil blocking allowed us to start and support indoors and grow lights and shelves, a hundred thousand seedlings a year throughout Mm -hmm. all the seasons. Um, and it just was so easy to maintain and do and um, super space savvy. Yeah. Um, and now we even have the commercial line, the Swift blockers yeah. that um, are just make it a more efficient way to make the blocks. And mm-hmm. um, so we really feel like we've arrived now. Yeah. Um, so anybody can soil block, no matter what your situation is. Commercial home gardener, um, soil blocking is just the soil blocking transplants are just what ravage us they're just so healthy and no transplant shock so they do really really well and so do you start off with the two inch or the one and a half inch cube and then go straight into the beds with them or do you bump them up from something smaller to larger in the blocks we actually start 99 percent of what we grow in the three-quarter inch block Mm. and that goes straight to the garden wow that was and that joe was because and you know what it's so funny i got to meet elliot coleman a couple of times and we had long discussion about this and it's like i his book he's the one that taught me how to soil block and um to do his method, which is starting with a larger block, which of course is you know a great way to do it, but I didn't have that option because I had such limited space. And it's like, by golly, I want to be a flower farmer. I need to start thousands of seedlings, not 200 at one time, right? And so that just pushed me to really learn how to start. I mean, we do zinnias and marigolds, all of them in the small three-quarter inch block. And the bottom line is this, timing. Um, We plant zinnias when they're two to three weeks old. They're four to five inches tall and they are gorgeous in that little block. But if you try to push them a week past three to, you know, two to three weeks, they start getting ugly and diseased and stretching. There's nothing you can do. So that's kind of what I based my entire career on was being able to start volumes of seeds. Um, so we kind of created soil blocking into what's called a tabletop version where you can water on racks with solid bottom trays with no drainage holes. And mm-hmm. um, that's kind of what's led me down this patch. So we don't bump commercial growers. Just there's just no time to bump. <laughs> yeah. And time, you know, there's, yeah. Time is everything. And you, like you said, you've got it down you can't be a week late on anything from when you bump, get it into the ground. That's uh, that's not a big window. 
Yeah. So you don't, you, that's right. So you just have to time it correctly. And I mean, people most often start way too early and then they send me pictures of these horrible looking seedlings in the three quarter inch block. And my first question is like, how old are they? And they're like, (laughs) oh, they're seven weeks old. It's like, my goodness, that wasn't, you were like, that would be like putting 200 people on a school bus and leaving them on there. That's, you know, you just can't do it that long, you know? And um, so it worked really, really well for us. And um, it really has created the opportunity for me to become what I am really. That's um, very interesting to hear that feedback. And it's um, it leads me to want to give three quarter inch blocks a try again. I, I just visually think they look so small. It's like I I need more time because I don't I don't have the luxury yet of having that precision time where, you know, I can get it planted directly into the bed in that one week, you know. So right. I like, I like starting off bigger to give them some more time with a bigger space, but just really quickly I have to say you and I are both big fans of Elliot Coleman and and I had a chance in a Growing a Greener World episode to go up to his farm and spend time with him and sit in his greenhouse with him as we bumped up from mm. three quarters to two inch blocks, his tomato seedlings and see him do it, learn how he did it and do it with him. And that was, you know, that's one of those highlights that you, you never forget. I explained meeting him. I was actually speaking at a Mother Earth News conference in Asheville, North Carolina, and he was there and I was actually going to be speaking next on soil blocking. (laughs) And it's like, do you think I was nervous? (laughs) holy guacamole oh my goodness it was absolutely incredible so all of a sudden the place is packed I see the little sea party and here comes Elliot to our booth because he had spotted that I mean we sell the same hose that he designed you know so he was coming to our booth to borrow something and um to use and oh my goodness gracious it was so um it was like meeting Mick Jagger (laughs) it was right up there with I was totally nervous and speechless and, um, <laughs> you? it was, you? yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, I was, uh, my sister's trying to not very discreetly take pictures of us talking, <laughs> you know, not trying to be so fangirlish, but yeah, that was, um, that was really something. So he really did a great service, mm-hmm. um, and just very practical. And I mean, I literally just followed everything he said yeah. and, you know, and then just had to tweak it to my environment and my situation and work really well. And I did, I watched your, um, growing a greener world with Elliot yeah. and, um, yeah, so it's awesome. It, uh, you know, one more little word of praise for Elliot and then we'll move, try to move on. But what I love and what I think a lot of people love about him is that he's a real thinker and he's a doer and he's been at it forever, but he's always thinking about, you know, is this the best way and is there a better way? And if so, can I make it that way? And he's very forthcoming with his information and his willingness to share and his support of this, this, the little guys out there, you know, he's, he's a real treasure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he was definitely key for my start. Mm -hmm. That is for sure. I mean, I literally learned how a farm worked. I came from a non-gardening background, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't get how that whole system worked and he just kind of made it black and white and brought it clear for me. Yeah. Well, uh, I love the the parallels that you and I have and just the, well, flowers and vegetables have really, but you and I is the, the voice of that for now in the benefits of succession planning and planting and why it makes sense and when it makes sense. But one of the things I think is really helpful, and this ties back to really Elliot, is as a home gardener or a market farmer who's just getting into this and trying to find our way, 
taking notes from these people that have been before us, these real pros out there doing it, these farmers that uh, have figured it out. And we can, you know, learn all of that for free or a small price, but that's invaluable information to glean from all of their wisdom and experience, right? It's true. I mean, I, I never felt like I needed to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. Um, and I meet a lot of people that do feel like, you know, they, they really want to pursue that. What if, Yeah. well, it's like, it's working really, really great this way that I learned it. And I'm always open ears for new ways to do things, but people like Elliot, that, like you said, he's just such a thinker and a problem solver. And interestingly enough, I used to watch him and Barbara on PBS yes. before home garden TV ever even was born. Right. And I wasn't even a gardener, but like, there was nothing else. That's when we have four channels, right? I mean, <laughs> are, am I old or what? But I can remember watching him soil block. And one thing that stuck with me that really helped me learn how to soil block, he was mixing his blocking mix on a slat on a piece of plywood or something up on a table, you know, no sides on it. And he was talking about if you have trouble making soil blocks, it's probably most likely because your blocking mix is not moist enough. Mm. And sure enough, I mean, that has just stuck with me. And I'm also, you know, I'm such a stickler about using the right blocking mix. It's because of him. That's what he says. Yeah. I tell people this isn't my recipe. That's Elliot's recipe. I'm just passing it on. And I mean, it works for a lot of different reasons. It's more than just coming out of the blocks and making a little block. It is much deeper than that. And if I don't ask you right now, a lot of listeners are going to be mad, but can you share with us that recipe, that general recipe? Oh, sure. Yeah. And it's always on our website, yeah. but it's 16 cups of sifted peat moss or cocoa fiber. I personally prefer peat moss. Um, and for 16 cups of peat moss or cocoa fiber, four cups of sifted compost, any type, as long as it's finished. Mm -hmm. And then a, a quarter or a half a cup, you'll have to go look on our website, yeah. of green sand and rock phosphate powder. Wow. You have got to use powder. Mm -hmm. um, and because think about seed starting, those little blocks don't need a chunk of anything in there. That's no. why you're sifting it. Um, and so that, I mean, I just learned from him when we thought very briefly, gosh, it must've been seven years ago or something when I met him, it had just been coming out in ag papers that green sand was mm -hmm. going to no longer be available. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to use in place of green sand for making our blocking mix, right? And that's when I happened to meet him. And I said, hey, what are you going to do about yeah. green sand? He said, I had not heard that. Ooh. And he was actually in the midst of rewriting his book, The New Organic mm -hmm. Grower, the second or whatever edition, <laughs> um, and shared with me then that kelp was potentially – it doesn't do all the same things, but kelp powder would potentially be a replacement for that. But um, anyway, so there's a, the recipe is on our website under resources, all things soil blocking. It's always there. And it's the gardenersworkshop.com. Correct. The other thing that I think that a lot of people lose their momentum on so on succession planting is it's like for me um when i'm and i'm one of the main harvesters i was through the last few years of our high production i mean i was the fastest harvester here on the farm we had other people and i am pretty much the only harvester here when i finish harvesting a bed if it did not give forth 
what I think should it should have given. I stop almost always right then, pull the netting off the bed so that the bed can quickly be what we call extinguished, tore down however you do it, you know, whatever your method of madness is. But getting the flower support netting off, which we put on most beds to keep the flowers upright and right, Mm -hmm. and allowing the next step to happen quickly before the weeds start growing, because then your job just got 10 times harder. And every day you delay it, it gets more and more work. And so I think I've learned that the greatest opportunity to stick to my succession plan is Bobo will come in and say, I just harvested and this is all I got. You need to bush hog that bed tonight so we can replant it, you know, in the next few days, rebuild it and replant it. We've learned that moving fast instead of him and hawing, should I take it out? Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe next week. Well, by next week, if it's not a full canopy or whatever you're talking about, the weeds will start to kind of creep in. You know how they are when they get a little light, they're awful greedy. And so I think you just have to, you know, as I often say, pull your grown-up britches up and just say, I am going to do this. And if you do it one season, and I call a season or one gardening year, and stick to your plans, don't plant but a third, Mm -hmm. then plant another third, then plant another third, and reap the benefits. And I'm telling you, you get to exercise your gardening muscle all the time. And it's not overwhelming. You don't feel like you're chained to the garden. It's more of an enjoyment. And it really, it really has, it changed me so very, very much. Mm. Words from the wise. And, and on those mm. beds that you hadn't planted, just um, are those covered with plastic or mulch or It depends weeds? on what it is. Yeah. Um, so we do have, we keep silage tarps mm-hmm. here and they're actually cut in six foot pieces wide and whatever length of the beds so we can quickly cover a bed a bed Mm -hmm. that gets let's just say we pulled out those snaps day Mm -hmm. before yesterday i told andrew pull the snaps out immediately go get silage tarps and put weight bags down yeah and that'll extinguish any little weeds that are perhaps growing there but more importantly guess what it keeps weeds from growing um sometimes if there's a bed that happens to be mulched in something some organic matter of whatever if it's thick enough we'll just leave that Um, sometimes we plant cover crops i don't recommend that new young budding growers and gardeners really get involved with cover crops until you've mastered growing something and (laughs) taking care of it because cover crops lead you down can lead you into a dark spot if Mm -hmm. you let them stay too long Mm -hmm. and then they you'll never come back so it just depends on the season what it is and what I have on hand to actually keep it from growing weeds. That's our main goal on this farm is to not grow weeds. You know? Yeah, I totally get that. <laughs> yes. And good good yeah. comments on the cover cropping because I, I'm an advocate for that in the right scenario. But as you just said, with new gardeners who are just trying their hand at so mm. many things at the same time, that's one that's a little daunting because for the very reason you said, you let it go too long yeah. and then you try to terminate that. And it's like, oh, my gosh, this is a battle that you weren't prepared for. Exactly. And, you know, the first 10, 12 years that I farmed, all I did, every bed that I had got 14 wheelbarrow loads of compost every time I flipped a bed. You don't have to have a gym membership around here. (laughs) And, I mean, that builds your bed. You're not, not cover cropping 
is not really creating a problem. You know what I mean? You just use compost or, you know, leaf mold or whatever finished processed product there is. So, yeah. So cover crop is not graduate work, but it's definitely undergrad work. So if you're in elementary school, stay away. (laughs) Yes. And that's the same thing I would say for people that, you know, if you don't, if I'm not cover cropping, because I say, you know, I don't really do it that much because my raised beds are not the easiest to cover crop into. And then I, because I use the compost and the shredded leaf mulch, it's accomplishing much of the same things. But for those who don't know, cover cropping is just basically a living mulch that serves different purposes depending on what you're trying to accomplish, whether that's to mine for minerals down deep or provide nitrogen fixation in the soil or just a weed block or something like that. But there's different reasons why you cover crop and it's very effective, but it's, as Lisa's already said, it's uh, not for the faint of heart until you really learn how to yeah. how to get it down. Okay. I really, really wish you'd have told me you don't do it in your beds. I did my Joe bed and clover and boy, it was it hard mm-hmm. to get out. Yeah. 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 So framed raised beds don't give themselves over very easy to cover cropping. (laughs) Amen to that. Don't you just love Lisa's no nonsense, matter of fact, laid back approach to how she does what she does, even though she is very methodical. She's been doing this forever. She's figured everything out on her own and she is really good at it. So if you'd like to go back and listen to the episode again, or definitely check out the show notes and see the related links and the pictures that go along with this podcast today, you can do that from our website at joegardner.com. Look for the podcast tab, and this is episode number 315. Okay, welcome back. If you'd like to listen to the full original episode over on Joe Lample's website, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. You'll find links there to other topics they mentioned as well, including Elliot Coleman's book. Well, that's all for today, flower friends. If you like what you're hearing here on the Field and Garden podcast, we'd love it if you'd tell a friend about us and leave a review for us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Jesse from the Gardener's Workshop, and I hope you have a great day. Mm-hmm.